0: What a wonderful privilege we have as a church family to partner with you parents. We know it's your job, you're raising them, you're discipling them, you're making disciples at home, and I love that Arvo, our children's ministry, our whole church family can come alongside you and encourage you in that. So let's take a moment and let's pray for these young boys and girls that they will grow a great, great love for God and his word. Father, what a blessing you've given us at Lawndale to partner with parents. We know you've given that job to parents to raise up these children and the way they should go. You, you've told them to teach them when they walk along the way, when they lay down, when they get up. Uh, we know that their job from one generation to the next is to teach so that that generation will teach the next generation. Help these boys and these girls that they will love you with all their hearts, that they will understand how much you love them and the reason you put them here on earth and that they will learn those lessons as they spend time in your word reading and growing and may may they love you and may they love your word all the days of their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What a great group of first graders. We are so thankful for you guys. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Even as we give Bibles to our first graders, we're teaching them the importance of God's Word. And even this morning as we stand and get ready to read from the text, we're communicating that we value, we reverence God and His Word. We we don't stand to read because we worship this book. But we stand to read because we worship the God of this book. We, we stand to read because we value who God is and the fact that he inspired these very words to be written down. So we love his word. Stand with me and let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. "...appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies, previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymeneus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You may be seated. The sermon today is the church serves the head of the church. It's really easy to get confused who we really do serve. There's so many voices telling us what we should be doing and what we should be doing. As a matter of fact, I think there's a lot that lives within each one of us in our own selfishness and sinfulness that causes us sometimes to think the church exists for me. There are some mistaken things that we serve. Sometimes we serve what we want. I want what I want, how I want it. If it's not like what I want, then I'm out of here, or I'm upset, or I'm mad, or whatever that might be. It's easy to make ourselves our own God, what we want. Sometimes we make what the world thinks our God. Because the world begins to press in and has certain values and certain things they think are important, or that are right or that are wrong, They try to impose their value system on the church, and it's easy to serve the world. Somehow we've got to rethink who we're serving, why we do what we do, because we serve really who we worship. If we're doing what we want, we're really worshiping ourselves. We've made ourselves God. If we do what the world wants us to do, we're really serving the world. We're worshiping the world. We're making the world our God, some type of idolatry. And so for us today, we've got to ask ourselves the question, who, who is our God? Who are we living for? Why, why are we doing what we're doing? Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we move into verse 12, is a charge, but it's also a reminder of, of who we serve, that we, the church, serve the head of the church. So again, look with me in verse 12. I want you to see the first point this morning the head of the church designates his work through people. I thank him, Paul says, talking about the Lord Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, there are a lot of really great, meaty thoughts in this one verse. Think about this Apostle Paul for a minute, someone that I'm sure many people were given plenty of accolades. The world was giving him pretty much persecution. But there were those who were valuing him as a church planter, as a pastor, as a leader, as an apostle. He would have been greatly revered. But he's giving us the whole basis for what he does in this verse. And it's all just gratitude. He said, I thank God. I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Maybe we as people are not as grateful because we're not being very faithful. We're not serving the Lord. We're serving ourselves. And when we begin to serve ourselves and make everything about us, we have a lot less that we're grateful for. We have a lot more that we're complaining about because we don't get what we want at home, in the workplace, at church, or wherever we might be. So Paul is coming back and he's, he's very grateful because he understands it's God that has given him the strength to do what he does. God had designated him. God had appointed him in this role just like God designates all of his people to serve. And Paul is saying, God's the one who gives me the strength to do the work that I'm doing. Londale, you can't change your spouse. You can't change your kids. You can't change our community. But God gives us his strength to do the work that he's called us to do and to be faithful. And once we step up and we become obedient, we become faithful, then God begins to do what only God can do. He says he judges me faithful. In one sense, when you read that, you think, wait a minute, was God saying Paul was worthy and faithful enough to do his work, so then he appointed him. Of course not. That would be inconsistent with everything else that we know and think. But it's because of God's choosing Paul, God's calling Paul, that God made him worthy. God made him faithful to be able to do the work of God. And as Paul began to do the work of God, he began to be faithful, and then God gave him more responsibility. Paul didn't start out as an apostle. He didn't start out as an apostle. He began to just faithfully walk with God, obey God. And as he was faithful, God gave him more responsibility. God began to do more great things through him. And so that brings us to that third idea under that God designates his work through people. He appoints people. And Paul is saying that in the verse appointing me to his service. What an honor. Have you ever been asked to do something that was an honorable thing to do and you thought, wow, I I can't hardly believe they even asked me to do that. And in this sense, God calls us to do his work. As his people, he appoints us, he designates us, every one of us who's in his family, God has given gifts and he's given abilities that we can do his work. And Paul is saying, God, God's appointed me. He's designated me. He's called me. The head of the church designates his work through people. Now, I'm going to help you to grow in your gratitude for just a second. We're more thankful when we learn to be more faithful. If we never learn how to be faithful again, it's really just about us and about other people. You really began to be more grateful when you realize it's not about me. So we're more thankful when we learn to be more faithful. Secondly, when we're more faithful, we learn what it is to be more fruitful. See, you begin to serve God and do what he's called you to do to make disciples. You parents, you take responsibility. God called you to make disciples at home. You start leading family devotions. You start talking to your kids about important things in life. You start doing some of your own study so you can answer some of those hard questions they give you. And what happens? God begins to let you see the fruit of that in your children's lives. Some of you are doing that at work. Some of you do that in uh, our uh, morning classes. You're investing in children's ministries and student ministries. And as you serve God, as you make disciples, you begin to see more fruit. When we're more faithful, we learn what it is to be more fruitful. And this is when it really begins to get sweet. When we're more fruitful we learn a whole new level of being thankful. Now you've seen God work through you. Say, God, how could you, how could you use me? How could you let me be a part of something so life-changing in people's lives? Every one of you who knows Christ, God has given you the responsibility to make disciples. He's, he's put you in a certain place, in a certain family, in a certain neighborhood, in a certain job place, in certain circles where you do business. God has strategically planted you there and he's called you to make disciples and the more faithful you are to him the more disciples you will make and the more grateful you'll be that man God really is using me how could he use me and we see that for Paul we see more people giving their lives to Christ the more we share the gospel we see more people growing up in their faith the more we make disciples and we see what's really important There are many people who live their lives and never do anything that's of eternal significance. Now, we only have so many days on earth, right? Those of you who knew me when I was at Lawndale the first time, you you know that I like to think of life like a football game. And if we think about the average life expectancy, we have about 80 years. Now, some live a little bit longer, some live a little bit shorter, but average life, 80 years. And so when we've... Lived half our lives, we've arrived, we've arrived at halftime, 40. So it, it already starts registering, right? For some of us who are already in our third quarter, say, man, life's getting by pretty quickly. Some of you are in the fourth, some of you're in overtime. You you get this. <laughs> now, what's eternal? What's eternal? Three things are eternal: God, the word of God and the souls of people. The extent with which you invest yourself in these three things is the extent with which you invest yourself in eternity. Are you growing in your relationship with God? Are you digging deep so that you can get to know Him and what is eternal in His Word? And are you investing in the souls of people, helping them to come to know Christ, helping them to grow up in Christ? That's eternal. And Paul here is in this really grateful place in his life. And as he's trying to encourage Timothy in the work that he's doing, he knows it's not easy. He's told him to confront those who are teaching sound doctrine. He's telling him to lead out in the church. It's not an easy assignment. And he comes back and he says, Timothy, I'm I'm just grateful to God that I can be his servant. Can you imagine the testimony and how Timothy felt? That's how I should be feeling. God... God has given me strength to be where I am. He's judged me faithful, giving me this assignment, and now he's appointed me to his service. And I can just imagine that that fellowship, that kinship that is there. The head of the church designates his work through people. Secondly, second point, the head of the church displays his patience through people. Notice what Paul says about his life before he came to Christ. Though formally, before I became a follower of Christ, before I was adopted into his family, I was, and he gives us three descriptions, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I was. This is one reason why, as believers, we're, we don't act mean or judgmental toward unbelievers. We know what it's like to be an unbeliever. I was. I was all that stuff. When somebody's living an ungodly life, it's not that we just come out and we begin to blast them as an unbeliever. We have compassion because we know what it's like to be an unbeliever. We know what it's like to live in the darkness and to be deceived. And so we want to bring the love of Christ to those who don't know him. I was. I was. That blasphemy, I used to talk about God in in ways that were blasphemous, and I treated people who loved God in a a terrible way, persecutor, and I was just an all-around bully, an insolent opponent. I was thankful this week for our justice system, right? We have godly people who are serving in a lot of different roles in life, pastors and preachers and doctors and lawyers and police officers, but when someone acts like a bully, justice is served. We, we trust our justice system with the Officer Chauvin this week. You see, God changes lives where we're no longer bullies and we're no longer misusing authority and power, where we begin to see that God is our ultimate one that we are held accountable to and we should treat life in a valuable, godly kind of way. I was... But I received, notice what changed Paul's life. But I received mercy. I received mercy. Instead of getting what I deserved, I deserved judgment. I deserved punishment. I deserve hell. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly. I, in other words, I was living in the darkness. I didn't know Christ. I was far from the truth. And that's what lost people act like, ignorantly. They, they don't know what they don't know. So again, as a church, when we come together, our job is not to just be critical of the world. Did you see that? Did you? Can you believe it's? Yeah, I can believe it. It's lost people acting like lost people. And Paul said, "I, I acted like that. I, but I received mercy. I didn't get what I deserved. Aren't you glad God didn't give you what you deserved? I received mercy, but what else did he receive? Grace. Verse fourteen. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. I love that. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I, you know, when I signed up to be a follower of Christ, I, I remember when I was 11 years old, just kneeling down and praying, God, I, I want you in my life. Please forgive me. I, I remember praying, Jesus, I know you died for me and rose from the dead. Come into my life. I, I signed up. I, I gave my life. At I'm so grateful to God that he brought me into his family at an early age. Some do it different. Paul was an adult when that happened in his life. So whatever age, it's it's always a thing when you look back. But you know, it's so much better than I signed up for. When I signed up, a lot of it was because I I didn't really want to go to hell. And I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I deserved that. I wanted to go to heaven. I wanted to be forgiven for my sin. I, I was... I did not understand all that I was signing up. No matter, and Paul didn't understand it as an adult, what all he was, but now as he reflects back, he talks about it being overflowing. A couple of months ago, I was driving through a drive-thru. I picked up a cup of coffee, my normal cup, and a little cream and a little sugar. And I, was, I took, got back on the road and I took a sip, and I thought, that's not what I ordered. It was so much better. I looked at, I read the label, and it said, caramel macchiata. <laughs> this was good. Uh, I don't need to do that every day. I I, I don't think that would be good for me. But that's like it is when you sign up for Jesus. It's not like He gives you everything you want, and man, your life's going to be easier. Easier. But you begin to understand the love of God. You begin to understand you didn't deserve any of that. all of that was a gift, and now you get to participate in His work. He makes you a co-laborer, and you get to do. You get to put your hands on eternal kinds of things and lay up treasure in heaven, and you get to know God and enjoy God and all the stuff of the world that once seemed so important and so valuable it just seems so much less now Paul got so much more than he signed up for and you see a grateful heart he said I was but I received and and it's not even that Paul sinned a little bit I, that's not really possible by the way I'm not a really bad sinner. I mean, I just sinned a little. You know, you're all bad sinners, and that we're all in the same category. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're not they're not categories of of lostness here. And, and Paul said, "But, but if if there was, I was the top level. I, I am the foremost." Does anybody here do you think Man, God could never use me? Paul said, "I I was at the top of the God can't use me list." I was the foremost. And I'm thankful for us, for we are foremost sinners, that there is a foremost Savior. He's, he's a notch above that foremost sinner. He wipes away all sin. The blood that He shed on the cross is sufficient for anything you've ever done, any, any wrong direction you've ever gone. And Paul said, if anybody can be saved, man, if anybody could not be saved, it would have been me. But God saved even the foremost sinner. The foremost sinner needed the foremost Savior. Now, I love verse 15. This is one of of five sayings that probably were a little bit more like a catechism in the church. People would have grown up hearing in church services and at home it's, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Now, we're going to do a little bit of participatory worship right now. And I'm going to ask all of those who are ages 1 to 25 to do this catechism with me. I'm going to say the first part, and then I want you to say the second part. If you have to look at your Bibles, it's okay. Uh, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Those who are 1 to 25, Christ Jesus. Excellent. Now those who are 26 to 50, it's getting personal, isn't it? (laughs) The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus. Now, those who are over fifty, fifty-one and above, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. All right, now let's let's do it as a family, okay? All of us together. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's good, isn't it, as a family? I mean, how how more impressive on our hearts can this be to know that Jesus didn't come to serve Himself; He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's that's the head of the church set an example for us. We aren't here to serve ourselves; we're here to serve the the, the King of Kings and he goes on a little further and, and gives us even more about his perfect patience. So look with me in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. The imperfect person needed perfect patience. No matter how little or big your imperfection is, if you want to think of it like that, the imperfect person needed the imperfect uh, needed perfect patience. Why is it that lost people still walk on the earth? It's the patience of God. It's not because there is no God. It's not because there's an unconcerned God. It's not because God's okay with how lost people live. It's because God has perfect patience. He doesn't desire anyone to die lost. And to die for eternity in the place we call hell. He he wants everybody to be saved. He desires all people to be saved and to come into his family. Notice what is said about this person with perfect patience. Paul breaks out into this praise uh, doxology to the king of the ages, that is, he's eternal. He will always, he's, he's the one who's been in control all of this time. There have been rulers who've arisen that thought they were in charge. And God every time shows who's in charge. He will always be in charge. He's the king of the ages. He is bringing thing to a, things to a close. And one day that close is going to take place. All things will be finished. All things will be settled. And I believe that time is closer now than it's ever been before to the king of the ages, immortal. He will never decay. He will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never die. He He will never be less than he is. He will never love you more or love you less. He's perfect in all his attributes. He's invisible. Maybe we don't say enough about the invisibility of God. I think about our our kids and sometimes we expect a lot of them, how do you know God loves me? How do you know God's here with us? Well, we teach about the invisibility of God. He's a spirit. He's omnipresent. He's eternal. The Father has no human body. The Son took on a human body because we needed someone that would appease the wrath of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead took on a human body. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised in a bodily resurrection. He still has a body. It's just a resurrected body. But God the Father, God the Spirit, these two persons, they're they're spirit. That's why we can say God's always with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's present with you. Even though physically we can't see Him with our eyes, we're able to know Him, understand Him. We're able to see the fruit of His work, this designer, this sustainer, this sovereign God. He's invisible, and he's the only God. The world may tell you there are many gods, but there's only one. And all paths don't lead to, that sent to one God. There's only one path that leads to the one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. And those who place their faith in Jesus Christ can be a part of his family. There is only one God. And Paul says to him, this is. King of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that the kind of person that you want to give your life to and serve? This kind of God? You're, You're a terrible God. If you're doing just what you want to do, you are a terrible God. If you're worshiping yourself and we, we serve who we worship, you are a terrible God. If you're serving the world, doing what the world wants you to do, the world is a terrible God. It never satisfies. You will never satisfy yourself and the world will never satisfy you. There's the only way to drink from a fountain that never runs dry. And that's Jesus. This one God. The head of the church displays his patience through people. Let me give you the third idea this morning. The head of the church delivers his help through people. God is oftentimes referred to in the Old Testament as our helper. It's it's, it's an esteemed role that God says, I will be your helper. I will help you. What a, an encouraging word for us today that God is your helper. He doesn't leave you by yourself. He, he Even in these assignments that he's given us to do, he doesn't leave us to ourselves. He's our helper. And he delivers his help oftentimes through people and discipleship is help. There is discipleship through the church. Now think with me of a, a couple of word pictures this morning. The church is a training ground, not a playground. Sometimes we see it as, I'm going to go and have a lot of fun and be entertained, and it's do what I want to do, playground mentality. The church is a training ground. We come to church to worship the one true God and to be trained and equipped to do the work that he's given us. It's a training ground. Now, does that mean we can't laugh? Of course not. Does that mean we don't have fun together and enjoy... Our walk with Him and our walk, of course not. What a terrible thing if all we did was walk around with grim faces and we never laughed, we never had any fun. God didn't make us like that. He meant for us to enjoy Him and to enjoy the work that He's given us together as a family. But the church is a training ground. We we don't have church just for you to come in and be entertained. We don't have church so the world will come in and say, Man, that's a great church. We have church because we serve the head of the church. One, he's commanded us to gather as his people. He's commanded us to gather so that we can encourage each other, we can fellowship together, we can worship together. It, but it's a training ground. Maybe looking at it in terms of a ship will help us. Some people see church like a cruise ship. Now, if you when you get on that cruise ship, you know you, all your needs are taken care of, right? I mean all the food you want to eat, the entertainment that you want, the sleep that you want. I mean it's it's all about you. And people pay big bucks to go in and enjoy a cruise. And there's I, if you haven't taken a, I hope you will be able to. They're fun, they're nice. It's good. It's a good break and a, it's a, it's a good getaway, but the church is not a cruise ship. Sometimes we talk about the church and say well the cruise if it's not a if it's not a uh, the church, if it's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. Now, I get that because the the Bible talks some about our walk with God being like a battle. We're we're Christian soldiers. The problem is sometimes we don't understand what Christian warfare, following Jesus' warfare is. It's not going out and conquering in terms of defeating people. It's going out and serving and loving and blessing and praying. It's, It's... Living life in such a winsome way that even when we're mistreated, we give good for evil. And what, what oftentimes our church is known for, being mean-spirited and ugly and hurtful and condemning. And We don't condemn the world. We don't judge the world. That's God's business. We go out and we share Christ's love with the world. We share the gospel. We, we judge inside the church, Right? What what, what, are, what are we doing as far as trying to judge the world when judgment begins where? In the house of God. We're, we're to be encouraging, discipling each other and helping each other grow up in our faith. And when that happens, then God moves us out that we can be a light and be gospel sharers, good news bearers to the world. So instead of maybe a battleship that may look like Standing on the shore and just shooting our bullets over the bow, maybe we should see ourselves more like an aircraft carrier where we all come together, we land on the ship, we're refueled in our worship of God and our fellowship together, being equipped through the Word of God, and then we're sent back out to do the work of God. It's, it's not about us, it's about the head of the church. And what did the head of the church say? Go and make disciples. We're to gather, but why are we gathering? So that we can be refueled, we can be renewed, we can enjoy our walk with God, we can be prepared to go out and do the work that he's given us to do in the world. And so when we leave this place, it's not just, oh, that was a great service, it's, that was that, he's a great God, what do we now go do as a result of that? We're being sent from our gatherings and our meetings. J.D. Greer wrote, some about this in his book, Gaining by Losing. Listen to what he said. Members need to learn to share the gospel in the community and start ministries and Bible studies. Churches must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. The head of the church delivers his help through people, discipleship, but also through discipline. This is one of the values of preaching verse by verse. Probably in one of my first few sermons, I'm probably not standing up teaching about church discipline. But because it's in the text, it's here. We have no choice but to deal with it, right? Notice in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Going back to this discipleship from the very beginning, verse two to Timothy, my true child in the faith. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage The good warfare. So all this discipleship is happening. Timothy's engaging in warfare. He's been sent to Ephesus to to do this work. Even the words from from his mentor, Paul, and other believers, these these prophecies that had encouraged him about his work, doing this work for God, all of that was a reminder, a refresher. Part of his discipleship, and then really some hard work was going to happen Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There were two men that were in the church that were teaching false doctrine. They had. They had shipwrecked their faith. They had moved away from where God had given them as far as their bearings, the North Star, the Word of God. They were not teaching sound doctrine. They were not practicing sound doctrine. And Paul is telling Timothy to call them out, go to them. And and Paul is saying, I've already judged because it's within the church. These men are not walking with God. I've handed them over to Satan. In other words, don't, don't let them have rights of membership any longer because they're not trusting God. They're not walking with God. They're doing what is contrary to the things of God. Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, this is what he wrote about discipline in the church. The best way to explain how they would have put away this man is to understand they removed him from the membership of the church and generally stopped associating with him outside the church meetings. It's just the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you know, that there, there's sin and report in reporting the church that, that even the world thinks is unbelievable. And he said, for this reason, you need to exercise discipline. You need to turn this guy over to Satan. In other words, let him have the consequences of his mis- misbehavior. Don't just sweep it under the rug. Don't just say, well, well, well people will be people. These are members in the church and they receive help. The most loving thing we do is try to restore a fallen brother, not leave him in the ditch, stuck in his sin. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's handed him over to Satan. We're, we're not... Sh- Treating this guy like a member. We're not shepherding this person. They've, they've not accepted our instruction, our confrontation. Let them have the consequences of their sin so that they can repent, so that they get the consequences and have an opportunity to turn back. Now, Jonathan Lehman in his book, Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus, gives us five purposes for church discipline. And remember, this is God giving help. He loves us too much to let us do our own thing. Parents love their children too much to let them disobey. God loves us too much, and he uses the church to, to help others. And so these five purposes that Lehman lays out, discipline aims to expose sin. Instead of letting a cancer go unchecked, you, you deal with the cancer. You don't let it just linger, because what happens when you don't deal with it? Well, It spreads. It aims to warn. We're, we're being truthful with people, bringing truth to them. It aims to save. It's the most loving thing we can do when someone gets stuck in a sin. Now, all of us are sinners. We know we all fall. We're talking about unrepentant sin. When someone is teaching uh, false doctrine or living contrary to sound doctrine, and they're unrepentant of it. Discipline aims to save. Discipline aims to protect. Number four, the body. The body. This is is the head of the church's body. He's preparing his bride for his return. We're, We're keepers. We're guardians of the body. We should be building up the body, and church discipline allows us to do that. And then the fifth reason, discipline aims to present a good witness for Jesus. How many people are turned off to the faith because those who say they're Christians don't act like it? Because those who go down to Lawndale Baptist, well, you know, they they don't, well, you ought to see or hear them at work. I mean, it's a whole different life. Or the way this person treats his family, or, I mean, you go through the line. Church discipline aims to present a good witness for Jesus. Now, if we were serving ourselves, we would not bother with it. If we were just serving the church, we might not bother with it. But we're serving the head of the church, and this is what he's instructed us to do. Why? Why is it that we don't serve the head of the church? I, I would say one of the number one reasons is consumerism. Consumerism hinders us from serving the head of the church in his body. What I mean by that is serve me. Church is about me. Or serve the community. Give the community what it wants from us. That's consumerism. If I don't get what I want, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be happy. Consumerism. We serve the head and give him what he wants. Discipleship. If you weigh that with consumerism for just a minute. Do you really expect people will be willing to be discipled? I mean that that people would want to grow in their faith that maybe, not, maybe don't know how to read their Bibles yet. That they would say... Sign me up, I want to learn how to read my Bible, I want somebody to disciple me. What about somebody who doesn't really know how to be a godly dad or husband? Do we, Rodney, can you really expect someone to say, sign me up, I want to be discipled so I can grow in that area of my life? Or I don't really know how to be a, a, a Christian in the workplace. Do you expect people to say, I want to be discipled? Well, if we serve the head of the church, we start with what God gives us, with people who are willing to grow. God means to help the church and he helps through discipleship as people are equipped and discipled to serve him. And even this idea of discipline, Rodney, you know, you're, who's going to come back to Lawndale? You're talking about church discipline. I mean, that could get pretty personal here, right? You're you're going to offend people if you were to go to someone who is stuck in a sin. But how do we have any choice if Jesus is the head of the church? And this is what he's commanded us to do. I'm going to tell you, living for yourself is very disappointing. I am old enough to know that. I've done it enough. Where I wanted to just please me. I wanted it to be about me. I I remember when I was first married, I I thought, man, I am going to be a good husband. My wife's lucky. She's, I mean, I'm going to be a good husband. (laughs) I thought, and I, this, how hard can this be? And it didn't take me long to realize how selfish I was. You know, every, at first I was thinking, why, you know, why is she doing this or why is she not doing that? You know, it was all about her, you know, because, I mean, I had—I was pretty much right about everything, right? I mean, but its it's interesting how God began to show me so many things I was wrong about or things that I would get upset about that it really wasn't about her, but it was about me because I want it done a certain way and she didn't do it like I wanted it. So who, who who's the problem? And I am. It's about me. I've made it about me. And I really did not realize how selfish I was until I got married. And sometimes in a church family, we think, well, you know, I'm I'm here. you know, I'm, I'm not selfish and... Consumerism, the whole idea of wanting what we want like we want it, it keeps us from really serving the head and serving the body. I want to challenge you, church family. Man, God's given us such a wonderful opportunity. I I can resonate with what Paul said. I thank God that He's given me a strength that. He has counted me faithful. He has appointed me to his service. I I resonate with that so much. I'm so grateful to be your pastor, Lawndale. And I believe more than ever, more than ever, that God's given us a chance to be the church that he wants us to be. But I'm I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you. I'm saying to you, let's, let's let Jesus be the head of this thing. Let's let it be about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our building. It's not about our facilities. It's about the head of the church. Join me in this great mission. And let's ask God to do what only he can do through a bunch of ragtags like us. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters I'm humbled that you would let me be a part of this family and let me serve alongside of these men and women. I pray that today that we would be renewed in our commitment to you, the head of the church. I, I pray that our hearts would be so burdened to please you, the one who Died for the church, the one who allows us to be in the church, the one who one day is coming back for his church. I pray that our hearts should be so heavy that we wanna we would want to do nothing less than give our absolute all, our absolute best for the head of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you may want to pray where you are in this time of commitment. The altar is open. Pastors will be available after the service if you want to talk with someone. But I would ask you, let's let's do business with our God today, the head of the church. Let's stand together.